gonna if you're gonna enjoy the benefits of the CP to come here to seminary, but you're not gonna be a fan of the CP when you get out, he said that's that's a lack of integrity, and you might as well find you another seminary to go to since those churches are basically paying for you to be here. Y'all, the cooperative program does just about more for the gospel than any other cooperative giving system in the world today. So I appreciate y'all so much coming and sharing that with us uh, today. If you open your copy of God's Word to Matthew uh, chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, I told Dave uh, I wanted to kind of dovetail off of what they were talking about today. Uh, so I want us to look at an episode from, from, from the, the ministry of Jesus uh, that, that will help us hopefully kind of see Jesus' heart for the lost, Jesus' heart for people who need to hear the gospel, who are hungry to hear the message that Stapleton has been tasked with, that Dave and Judy have been tasked with, that North American missionaries have been tasked with, international missionaries have been tasked with, that every Christian has been tasked with. There's a message that everybody needs to hear, and we need to see Jesus' heart for those people who need to hear that. So, so if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 35 through 38. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for missionaries. Thank you for the call to discipleship. Lord, we do pray that you would send out workers into your harvest, Lord, and help us know how we as Stapleton Baptists can best support and to be those laborers. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So uh, I, I want to look at this passage from, from this, this event from Jesus' life because I see some very interesting things in it. And it's a very simple passage on the outset because Jesus, uh, it makes my job easy as a pastor when Jesus just says, hey, here's, here's this in response, do this. I don't have to work very hard on finding the correct application when Jesus just says, hey, here's your application, do this. So on the outset, it looks very simple because Jesus says, hey, pray for God to do this. But there's more in this passage than just that. Uh, there's some questions that we need to ask. And first, I want us to ask, how do we see others? When you look at other people, what do you see? Now, in verse 35, it says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, it says all the cities and villages. Uh, that being said, Jesus' earthly ministry was pretty much confined to a couple hundred square mile stretch of what we know modern day Israel. It, it, it was not a very wide ranging footprint that he himself did during his earthly ministry. But in that footprint that God gave him, he went all over the place. And he's in these cities. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's preaching. He's, he's healing every sickness and disease. But then, in verse 36, he sees the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered 
like sheep not having a shepherd. I want to talk to you about objective truths and subjective responses. What is an objective truth? It is an objective truth right now that the sun is shining outside. It doesn't matter if you see it, if you don't see it. Have you ever heard the question? Have you ever heard somebody ask if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's around to hear it? Does it make a sound? It's a dumb question. Of course it makes a sound. (laughs) Yes. The objective truth is that when the tree falls, a sound is made. The subjective response is, if you're close and you hear the sound, you get scared because you perceive that objective truth and you respond to it in a certain way. And you might respond to it in different ways depending on who you are. If you're not expecting the tree to fall, you might have a scared subjective response. If you're out there cutting timber and you hear the tree fall, you're going to have a happy response because you intended the tree to fall. If you're out there angry that somebody's cutting timber and you hear the tree fall, you're going to have an angry objective response because the tree fell. But do you see how I'm saying the tree fell? That's the objective truth. That doesn't change. But the subjective response can change based on how you feel about what happened. Objectively, Jesus looks out at the multitudes and they are weary and scattered like sheep not having a shepherd. It doesn't say Jesus thought they looked weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. It doesn't say that that's the impression he got from them. It says that he looked out at the multitudes and they were. They were lost. Because y'all, have you met a sheep? Have you ever seen one? They ain't winning a Nobel Prize anytime soon. Okay? A sheep without a shepherd could wander literally anywhere. It could wander around the pasture and just by dumb luck, stay safe. It could wander right into a bear den. It could wander into somebody else's flock and get lost. It could wander any number of places. Sheep sheep are sheep. And they walk around and they get confused and they get lost and they get tired and they don't have a shepherd to bring them back. And it's just a sad situation. And Jesus looks out at this multitudinous crowd of lost people and objectively sees they're weary, they're scattered, they have no shepherd. And how does he respond to it? That's an objective truth. That is the state of the lost. Weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And by the way, sheep who don't have a shepherd don't know they don't have a shepherd. They're sheep. They don't have the concept of shepherd. They just know safe, not safe. He feeds me. He guides me. He guards me. They don't think of him as a shepherd. When they don't have one, they don't know they don't have one. He looks at them and he sees these sheep who are weary and scattered and have no shepherd. And his subjective response is that he sees them and feels moved with compassion. He has this visceral, emotional, compassionate response 
toward the lost when he sees them in their weary, scattered lostness. So, what is the relationship between objective truth and subjective response? An objective truth is what it is for everybody, regardless of how you feel about it. Y'all, the reality is, there are going to be lost people out there whether or not you feel compassion for them. They're there. There are going to be lost people out there whether or not you want to know there are lost people out there. You can cover your eyes and go, no, I can't handle the stress. I can't handle the, the commitment. I can't handle the responsibility. I just want, you know, uh, me, and, me, me and Jesus, we're just going to keep our faith between us. That's going to be fine. I'm just going to block that out. Y'all, the objective fact is that there are lost people out there, weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The question is, what is your emotional response to that knowledge? What can we learn from Jesus' emotional response? To seeing the lost. Well, has Jesus ever done anything wrong, church? No, he hasn't. That's the reason that we can look at Jesus as our model. Now, he's not just a model, okay? He is the substitutionary atoning lamb of God. You know, he didn't just die on the cross to show us God's love. He died on the cross to pay, the, pay our sin debt and give us eternal life. I'm not saying he's just an example. But he certainly is an example. We can look to him as inerrant, infallible, word of God made flesh. So if Jesus looks at the weary, scattered, sheep having no shepherd lost and has this emotional, visceral, compassionate response, what should our response be to seeing the lost? It should be the same as Jesus's. Which means if we look out at the lost and we don't have that response, something is off kilter in our hearts. Something is wrong. Now we can have all kinds of different responses when we see the lost if we don't just ignore that they're out there. <clears throat> we can have a negative emotional response to the lost. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 39. I know y'all looked at your handout and you're like, now wait a minute, he's supposed to have a shorter sermon. How in the world have we got both sides of this handout? I couldn't cut context out of these verses or they wouldn't make sense. So I'm just... Luke 7, 36-39. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who invited him, that's Jesus, saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Man, this guy can't be good. How, why would you even associate with somebody like that? Christians, be careful. Don't look out at the lost and think, oh my goodness, I wouldn't have anything to do with them. They're, they got this going on and this going on and they've done this and they've been there and they've said that and they've got... And such were some of you. 
Such were some of us. Every single one of us in here was born. What, what was it they said to the, the man that had, had been healed? Every single one of us in here was born steeped in sin. The only reason any of us are saved right now is because God pulled us out of the literal fires of hell. By mercy, by grace. It's not appropriate to have a negative emotional response when we see someone in their lostness. It's possible to have a superior, and when I say superior, I mean arrogant emotional response. An I'm better than you kind of thing. Luke 18, 9 through 14, and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And listen to this guy. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Now this guy's right beside him. Just gesturing to him, God, thank you for not making me like him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the man that Jesus said will be exalted didn't want to lift his eyes to heaven because he was conscious of his own sin. He was conscious of his imperfection. He was conscious that he was a messed up, broken human being and he fell on his face before God and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me. Give me your grace. I need that. And God honored that the same way that God will honor that today if you need to be saved. That you don't have to pretend that you got it all together. In fact, the opposite of true is true. If you want to be saved, you've got to admit to God that you don't have it all together and that you can't get it all together on your own. You've got to cry out for His mercy and He'll honor that. But be careful. Be careful, Christian. Looking out at the lost and seeing them and saying, Whoa, God, I'm thankful you hadn't made me like that. Because God says He's going to humble you. If, if, if that's how that's an inappropriate emotional response to the lost. And then sadly, you can have no emotional response. You can have no emotional response to knowing the lost are out there. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> he entered the synagogue again, and there was a man who had a withered hand, so they watched him closely, whether he'd heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. They didn't say anything. We don't care if you save him. We don't care if you kill him. We don't care if he keeps his leprosy. We don't care if it's gone. We just don't care. He looked around at them with anger being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Isn't it crazy how they didn't, how they didn't care about the one Jesus came to save, but they cared about getting rid of him when he decided to save somebody? Do we have any emotional response whatsoever to knowing that there are lost people Probably in these pews. 
statistically, there are lost people in these pews today. There are people who don't know Jesus Christ right now. Does that break your heart? Does that break your heart that maybe some of your next door neighbors, if they died right now, they would bust hell wide open because they don't have a a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it break your heart to know that there are people in the world to, to which marriage is a brutal experience? Does the gospel make a difference to those people? Yes. What is your emotional response? How do you see people? Do you have an emotional response to their lostness and to the suffering that lostness causes? If our emotional response doesn't match Jesus's, something is wrong. And second, how do we value others? Look at the first half of verse 37. So Jesus has seen that this crowd is scattered and weary like sheep having no shepherd. But then the first half of 37, he says to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. Now that's funny because these are people. This is not wheat. Right? So is it an objective statement that they are a harvest? No, it's not. It's a subjective interpretation of something Jesus sees. Jesus objectively sees that there are lots of these people. But he subjectively calls them a harvest. This is how Jesus sees the multitude of lost people. That they're a harvest. Now, what do you mean that that's subjective? Of course they're the harvest. Well, no, not necessarily. You could look at this group of people who's weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. You could think of them as an inconvenience. You could think of them as garbage and have a negative emotional response. You could say, I don't want to have anything to do with them. They're complicate, they complicate life. They take too much energy. They cause too much stress. I don't want anything to do with them. Let them stay in their corner of the world or their side of town or their side of the tracks. And I'm going to stay on mine because I don't want to deal with that. I just want to deal with me. And God's big enough. He can can save him if he wants to. You could have a negative response. Appropriate or inappropriate? Inappropriate. Right? Inappropriate response. Could have been the, the superior emotion response. It could have been the, the arrogant response, the patronizing response. Oh, poor little children. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I got it all figured out. I'm just going to teach you how to live like me, how to be like me. This paternalistic kind of, we're just going to turn you into us kind of thing. That'd solve all your problems if you were more like us. Negative response. Or you could have no emotional response. You could look at them like customers. Well, where do we need to target for outreach yet? Or outreach next? Well, that's a subdivision over there. If we reach a few of them, that'd probably help our church's bottom line. Customers. I don't want to reach them. All they'll do is they'll just, they'll expect the church to help them with stuff. They'll expect the church to feed them. They'll expect the church to clothe them. They're going to call me in the middle of the night. I don't want them. I want some folks that can give to the church, that can work in the church, and that don't require much work and effort from the church. Customers. 
We're not in the business of finding customers, y'all. We're in the business of seeking out lost, weary, scattered sheep. And Jesus says they're not garbage. They're not peasants. They're not customers. They're a harvest. Now, what are the properties of a harvest? When you think of a harvest, what do you typically think of? A harvest is valuable. It has inherent value or it wouldn't have been planted. Y'all, why do farmers plant cotton? Because somebody wants to buy cotton. Why do farmers plant peanuts? Because we like peanut butter sandwiches. We like boiled peanuts. Some of us like Thai food. You know, we need peanuts. The harvest is the property of a landowner. You ever heard somebody say, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by himself? You ever heard that? Yeah. Yeah. He had to have some what? If you ever drive by a field and you see pretty little rows and you see little plants coming out of those rows, how how did those rows come to be? Somebody planted them. Somebody tilled that field and pulled the rocks up and pulled the weeds out and, and, and put those, those seeds in rows. And they got the big irrigation things that spray my car with water during a certain time of the year when I drive past them. And it smells like manure every so often because they got to fertilize it. And you go, it smells like somebody's making money. You know, that kind of thing. That there's a landowner who planted that harvest, it's his property. And we value things that belong to us, don't we? Harvest, harvest is the property of a landowner. A harvest is also labor intensive. That it, it, you can stick a seed in the dirt and cover it up with some soil and, and shoot it with a super soaker, but if that's all you do, it's going to die. It's not going to come up. It's going to take work. And then finally, it's time sensitive. What happens? Y'all was getting nervous last year. There's a bunch of cotton still in a bunch of fields around here that every time I drove past that I wondered, is anybody going to ever get this stuff in before it freezes? Before it gets rained or before there's just this soggy white blanket at the bottom of the field because they hadn't brought it in. If you don't get a harvest in on time, what happens to it? It rots, it dies, it spoils, it perishes. And Jesus called this crowd of the lost a harvest. They have value as a creation of God inherently. They're property of a landowner. Do you remember when they asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay the tax to Caesar? And Jesus said, give me a denarius. And they give him a denarius and he looks at it and he says, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. The idea being Caesar's image is on the coin, so it belongs to him. But whose image is on you? God's image is on you. So you belong to who? You're valuable because you're the property of an owner. That the harvest is labor intensive. That y'all... There are a lot of lost people in the world and we can't just shoot up a flare that says, hey, y'all, come to Jesus. That's not going to work. It's going to take people in the field, blood, sweat, and tears 
It's going to take people tending the field. It's going to take people knocking on doors. It's going to take people building small groups. It's going to take people training pastors. It's going to take people starting churches. It's going to take people moving across the world. It's going to take people moving across the country. It's going to take financial sacrifice. It's going to take time sacrifice. It's going to take talent sacrifice. It's going to take church cooperation. It's not going to be easy because bringing in a harvest never is. It's labor intensive. And finally, it's time sensitive. Y'all, if we don't bring in a harvest, what happens to it? It dies. It perishes. Do you know what happens to those lost image bearers of God if the field is not worked? If laborers are not in that field? The harvest dies. You know, we don't want we don't want folks to die and go to hell because there aren't laborers in the field, do we? <clears throat> but what happens when we don't appreciate the value of the harvest? We can devalue people with our words, James three. 8 through 9, but no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless God our Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the similitude of God. When we see somebody that Jesus sees as a harvest, do we talk about him that way? Do we speak about him that way? When we talk about places elsewhere in the world that are different than where we live right now, do we speak down about them? We could devalue them by deed. The things that we do or the things that we don't do. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. How we treat the lost, how we treat each other in word and in deed is a picture of whether or not we value people the way Jesus did. Acts 11, 1 through 3. We can devalue people by disassociating from them. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter, how dare you associate with those people? Is that how we talk about a harvest? Is that how we think about a harvest? No. We can devalue them by showing partiality. We can prefer certain parts of the field over other parts of the field. James 2, 1 through 4, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say to them, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there and sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Y'all, the harvest is a big harvest. And it covers a lot of the world. And it covers a lot of Jefferson County. And when Jesus sends us out in the field and he plops us down in the middle of Jefferson County or Georgia or the United States or this little tiny planet called Earth, he doesn't intend us to pick and choose which parts of the harvest we think ought to be brought in. If God puts us in this part of the field, then guess what? If it's growing around us, we ought to care about bringing it in. 
partiality. We can devalue people like that. How do we value others? Do we value them as a harvest like Jesus or do we value them differently? And then finally, after how do we see others, how do we value others? What should we do for others? The second half of verse 37, Jesus says, Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Objective truth, there are few laborers. Subjective response, well, you could just twiddle your fingers and go, oh well, we don't have enough laborers. Well, what are you going to do about it? Is that a problem? Yeah, it's a problem. Jesus thinks it's a problem that there are not enough laborers. And He provides us the solution, which is first to do what? Pray. Pray. Where's your supporting scripture for this, Josh? Literally right here. Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. But second, look at how this works itself out. Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, (coughs) the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. What is the number one way to put missionaries in the field? Because missionaries, by the way, we don't plant them, okay? We pray and God raises them up. God calls them out. What is the number one way to get missionaries in the field? Pray for God to raise them up. That's the number one way to get missionaries in the field. By the way, is Stapleton a mission field? Is Jefferson County a mission field? Is the state of Georgia a mission field? Do you want folks to help us reach Stapleton, Jefferson, and the rest of Georgia? Are you praying for the lost people to get saved and come be a member of this church and help us labor? Because if we're not praying, that might be why it's not happening. Say, well, God can reach Jefferson even without our prayers. Sure He can, but there there are things that God... There's nothing that God can't do without your prayer, but there are some things that God won't do without your prayer. And that's one of them. Are we praying for God to send laborers into the field? Are we praying for more international missionaries? Are we praying for more domestic missionaries? Are we praying for more local missionaries and church members and folks to work in places like the nursery and vacation Bible school and to teach Sunday school classes? Or are we praying for that? Then second, if we pray, do we believe God's going to answer? And if God raises up somebody to go, are we willing to support them? Everybody knows Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ too. But what about 14? Paul says, nevertheless, you have done well in that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed uh, from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift. He's not looking for it. He's not fundraising. But I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all in abound. I am full having received from Apaphra, uh, Apaphra, uh, that guy, the things sent from you. 
A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That Paul said, I appreciate that after God called us and sent us out, you were faithful in supporting us. We can support the people who God sends out. And like I said, this isn't a fundraising day. Anytime you put money in the offering plate on Sunday morning, you support missionaries on the field every single Sunday. But then finally... Don't just pray. Don't just sin. But go. Go yourself. Pray for God to send laborers into the harvest. But what if the laborer he's waiting to send is you? What if you've been praying for that person that you work with that's lost, that you want to know Jesus Christ, that you want to be saved? What if the missionary that you're praying for looks at you every morning when you look in the mirror? What if it's you? What if God's raising up you? 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-3, Paul says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Sometimes God intends to raise up you. There's this scene in this movie 